Okay, welcome everybody, uh, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to you, wherever you are. Welcome to the uh, AOM SDR virtual symposium on strategic uh, human capital research. It's a great pleasure to uh, have uh, several distinguished uh, speakers today. We've got uh, uh, four uh, excellent uh, scholars who are doing cutting edge research on strategic human capital. Uh, issues, and they're going to present uh, their latest research on this topic uh, today, share that with us. Uh, and we also have got two discussants uh, to provide feedback uh, on these papers. Uh, and of course, there's also going to be some uh, room for Q&A uh, afterwards uh, as well. So um, let me just share uh, these uh, great distinguished speakers uh, for today. So today we've got uh, four uh, scholars. Uh, J.R. Keller, who's Associate Professor mm. uh, at Cornell. And uh, we've got uh, Ulya Solomon, uh, Associate Professor at uh, Washington University of St. Louis. Um, we've got D.K. Krasinski, currently Visiting Associate Professor at, at Michigan, and Victoria Shachenko, Assistant Professor uh, at INSEAD, uh, and the two uh, distinguished uh, discussants today are Russ Koff, uh, professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and uh, Matthew Bidwell, who's a professor at the Wharton School of the University uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, each of the uh, presenters are going to have 12 minutes to present their research, and we're going to start uh, with JR and Ulia first, uh, and then uh, we've got Russ uh, assigned as a discussant for both of those. And then we have some time for you to uh, add some comments, raise some questions before we turn it over to DK and Victoria, uh, followed by uh, Matt's discussion. And of course, then again, time for uh, you to raise any comments uh, and questions. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let me hand over to uh, JR, who's going to uh, present his paper. Uh, sounds great. Thanks for the great introduction, Philip. Thanks for having me. What an awesome turnout. Um, thanks to everybody for uh, for coming this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever it is, whatever time it is where you are in the world. I should have my screen shared. Can everybody see that? Okay. All right. So I'm um, really excited to present, I think, one of the studies that I've had the most fun working on, really, in the last 10 years. Um, it's with uh, my colleague, Catherine DeLugos at Penn State. Um, called Advancem to Attract and How Promotions Influence Applications in Internal Labor Markets. I'm going to give you kind of a cliff notes version of the, of the paper today. Um, I hope you find it exciting. Um, all right. So, I, you know, the, the real motivation for me is, um, is, is really primarily uh, practice oriented, or at least how I jumped into this was thinking about, you know, what's going on when we think about internal hiring and internal mobility and the movement of human resources within organizations. Um, and something exciting for somebody who cares about internal hiring um, is that it's actually increasing, right? So it's nice to be looking at a phenomenon that, you know, for a long time was decreasing, now seems to be on an uptick. There's some really great data from LinkedIn that notes that um, the increase in internal hiring has increased uh, around 10%, maybe even a little bit more over the past seven or eight years. Um, and then this is a number that's really accelerated since covid in part, um, you know, because organizations were losing so many people during sort of the great reshuffling that, that this was 
um, sort of offering opportunities for interim mobility, firms came to recognize that this was a really powerful way to actually keep people in the organization. So it became a real powerful retention tool. Um, you know, one of the things that I've written about um, and that I see happening is that a lot of this mobility now happens through some version of internal talent markets. Um, so sort of the, the backbone of these, and they look a little bit different from firm to firm, but essentially that the jobs get posted and individuals can figure out which jobs um, better fit their skills and interests and are free to apply for those opportunities. And this sort of assumes these frictionless markets inside organizations, you know, but we, we also have this sort of careers literature, which says maybe this isn't always the case, right? Because we know that managers have a great deal of influence on their subordinates mobility. So on the one hand, they can really help to support, right? And facilitate mobility through career sponsorship. Right? So helping to facilitate internal advancement through lots of different ways. Um, but, um, but Tim Gardner and others have written some really great work on talent hoarding, too, which is where, or, where managers can actually actively sort of hold on to their subordinates right, and hinder their ability to advance their careers in the organization. And so the big argument here um, that we want to advance is that really the extent to which managers support their current subordinates' advancement also helps to shape the opportunities that employees throughout the firm choose to pursue. So it's sort of this spillover effect of managers' sponsorship or hoarding behaviors. Um, and, and really the theory boils down, I'll keep this pretty short, to internal labor, labors, internal labor markets and signaling theory. Um, and a couple of, of main points here is one is that employees pay close attention to the career outcomes of others. Right. So in contemporary organizations, it's not often clear what the advancement paths are within the organization. And so one way individuals can figure out what move might be next for them or what might be a good next career move is to see what's happening to their friends and colleagues in the organization. And the other thing, I think this is pretty incontroversial, um, is that employees care about career advancement. They might not all care about it to the same extent, but in generally individuals want to advance their careers. And so this leads to a couple of different things when we think about applying for jobs, right? And so on the one hand, when individuals are applying for jobs, they wanna say, you know, is this particular move gonna help me advance my career now, right? Will I make more money? Will I get new responsibility, et cetera? But also it'll be a little more forward-looking and thinking about, will this particular job help me to advance my career in the future, right? So will a particular move position me to better move in the future? And that's sort of where signaling theory comes in. And here we're going to focus on what you know, we term outgroup promotions, which are you know, in, you know, employees paying attention to other employees and these promotions that take them into a higher level job in which they report to a new manager. So this is somebody actually moving up somewhere else in the organization as opposed to a manager just giving their current subordinates a slightly better title or a small pay raise. And the idea here is that employees throughout the firm are going to see these happening they're gonna look and, and, and they're gonna take a manager's support of their current subordinates as a signal as to whether they would be supported if they worked for that manager. So this would lead us to argue that the frequency with which a manager's subordinates receive outgroup promotions will be positive related to three things. And I'll just list them off here. That, that they, the managers who, who help per, get their current subordinates promoted will get more internal applications when they have open jobs posted internally, they will also get more applications from top performing or high performing employees. 
and more applications from, from individuals and other functions within the organization. And again, the, the logic here is pretty simple and it's employees throughout the firm are saying, if I go to work for this manager, is it gonna help me to advance my career in the future? And they're gonna look at managers track record of getting their subordinates promoted as a signal of to what, as to whether that'll be the case. And so that's the whole big theoretical story here. Um, and we test this with data from a Fortune 100 health services company, um, you know, think sort of health insurance, doctors, nurses, et cetera. And we were really fortunate to get all job application and personnel data over a five-year period. And what we focus on here is the, the unit of analysis as a, as a requisition, so an open job. And what that means is sort of in the data, right, we sort of see an open chair, right? And then we can look at at the, the number and characteristics of the internal applicants that apply for that particular job when it gets posted, right? So our dependent variables are all count variables. So it's the number of total internal applications received, the number of applications from top performers, that's individuals receiving the highest performance rating in the previous year, and the number of applications from individuals and other functions, right? So this is a marketing job. We might look at the number of applications from HR, sales, et cetera. And we're gonna look as our independent variable at the manager's outgroup promotion rate the previous year. The reason we focus on the previous year for our main analysis is we think that's gonna be the most salient, right? And also information that's most available to other employees. But we're gonna test this in a couple of different ways. We're gonna look at a two-year window, right? This idea that managers might develop reputations, right? For helping to sponsor their employees. Um, and we'll also look um, and just whether employees, whether managers promoted anybody. And of course, you can Im imagine doing a study of attraction and applications. There's so many things that might, might determine whether an employee wants to apply for a job elsewhere in the organization. And we try to control for as many of those things as possible. I'm not going to list these, but I'll just note that we sort of group these in three buckets. We look at characteristics of the manager that they might work for, the subordinates or their future coworkers that they might work for, and characteristics of the job itself. Um, and I'll just run you through really quickly. We use a negative binomial regression because this is an over-dispersed count variable. And, and we find general support for, um, for all of our hypotheses. You know, if you're like me, you look at this negative binomial and you're like, how the heck do I interpret any of these coefficients? Um, and so we did a little math wizardry um, on this, and, and it turns out that it's around a 10 to 11% increase in the number of applications. Practically in this organization, that's about one more application per open job. Our managers in this organization reported that was actually uh, practically significant for them. Um, one of the things that we, we found sort of reassuring was that we found the opposite effect when looking at managers exit rate. So not only um, do employees seem to be attracted to work for managers who have a history of promoting their subordinates, but they tend not to apply to managers whose folks leave the organization. Um, what else should you know? You know, we ran a whole bunch of different robustness checks, um, you know, to increase the confidence in our results. But, you know, one of the challenges with this is it's really hard to get into employees' heads, right, to really understand what's going on. And so we collected interview data across four different firms, both at HealthCo and three others. And I'm just gonna show you really small snippets of kind of what this told us. And, and we really found that current managers do have a ton of influence, right? This theme, this first sentence in this quote was a theme that we heard throughout, which is that a direct manager's influence on their employee's career advancement is massive. 
this is repeated over and over and over again in our interviews. And we saw this on the sponsorship side in the hoarding, right? Where managers said, listen, I can interview somebody for 30 minutes, but I can't get out of them half the information I can talking to their manager. And so hiring managers are talking to the current manager to get their perspective. And we did hear a lot about this idea of manipulation involved in managers, sometimes kind of subtly bad-mouthing their current employees to other managers or telling them they might not be ready, sort of engage in this sort of covert talent hoarding activity. Um, we also heard consistently that employees actually know who sponsors and hoards. And the real idea here down here at the bottom is that people talk, right? Employees are talking to each other. Studies of workplace gossip actually show that the, the second most discussed topic among employees are their managers, right? So they talk about how good of managers they are. And that this really does shape application behavior. We heard a really this really illustrative quote um, about a manager who has a job advertised right now, gets 72 applications, internal applications, but that never happens. And they attributed that because he has a reputation for developing his team and, and for supporting and promoting them. So we sort of found consistent, consistent um, backup for our me proposed mechanisms here. So the limitations and contributions here, single firm study tried to help the generalizability by doing interviews across multiple firms. It would have been really fun to look at sort of some, some measures of post-promotion to success. You know, again, every study has imperfections. We're hoping that, that this makes some contributions to the internal talent market and mobility literature to really focus renewed attention on the fact that managers really matter, um, that it's really useful to think about internal recruiting and not just external recruiting and what might be different in here that managers really matter. And that sponsorship and hoarding doesn't just affect employees, but also managers themselves. So managers that actually right, support their employees get rewarded on the back end by having more, better, and more diverse applications. And for us, from a practical perspective, hopefully that's a really strong argument against talent hoarding. All right. Hopefully I was able to be clear and concise enough in the, in the 12 minutes I had. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, JL. Perfect timing. Um, next, uh, let us hand over to Ulia um, uh, to present her paper. Okay, can you see my slides? Excellent. And I assume by default you can hear me. <laughs> Okay, so um, really delighted to be here today, and thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to a great discussion. I'm pleased with um, with um, with this opportunity to present our work. This paper is um, joint work with Ting Yu Du, who is in the audience, and she is a PhD candidate um, at UCLA. So naturally, all all the questions go to her. Okay, so. What we are looking at in this paper is really trying to understand what happens to the target managers after mergers and acquisitions. So um, I don't have to probably uh, convince any of you that mergers and acquisitions are an important way for companies to grow and acquire resources and capabilities. And among those resources and capabilities, uh, manager managerial resources and talent is really important. And especially for uh, post uh, post M&A performance, target managers play an important role. But we, what we also know from the literature is that there's a very large scale 
managerial turnover from the target firms after mergers and acquisitions to um, almost 40 to 45% of the target managers leave the firms um, after the mergers and acquisitions. And the key explanation to this phenomenon in the literature is that in related acquisitions, so in acquisitions that um, happen within related industries or within the similar industries, <clears throat> the target managers uh, become redundant resources. So um, the turnover, it happens because firms are replacing them to achieve efficiency, to reduce redundancy. So the puzzle that um, we would like to introduce in this paper is really kind of thinking, step, taking a step back and thinking about these target managers from the radical perspective and what we know about mergers and acquisitions. So resource-based views, strategic human capital literature, we know that managers are super important, um, especially in the business school. I mean, we don't have to make a case that managers matter. Um, they're scarce and valuable resources. So it's typically better to retain the valuable managerial resources. And um, also with the uh, managers being scarce resources, uh, after mergers and acquisitions, target managers, if target managers are departing, then the acquiring firm would need to deploy their own managers to the target, and which comes at non-trivial, non-zero opportunity cost. And also because in the context of related acquisitions, we also know that integration and coordination is so much higher than in unrelated acquisitions, so because integration is going to be important, uh, we know that target managers are typically really key to uh, successful integration. So then we think maybe um, is it because, you know, the, of this um, disconnect between the importance of the target managers and also their turnover, we see um, large um, empirical evidence of negative post-acquisition performance. So then the question is, really we're trying to understand, given related acquisitions, what are the conditions under which target managers actually retained and to what outcomes? <clears throat> In answering this question, we are um, making a distinction between two types of managerial human capital. The first one is pretty obvious, um, what has been established in the literature, what we're calling a technical knowledge. So basically the technical expertise or um, among the related, uh, in related acquisitions per se, the technical expertise and capabilities that are more related um, in, uh, uh, in the knowledge of the two uh, type, uh, two managers, the acquirer firm and also the target. So the technical knowledge is referring to um, really the, um, the type of knowledge that what is being done in the, uh, and can include things um, like industry specific knowledge, product knowledge and technological knowledge. So in related acquisitions, the target firms um, will have shared technological experience and knowledge base with similar products and markets as with, uh, with acquiring firm. 
Now, the second type of uh, managerial human capital um, that we are um, wanted to pinpoint here, and this is going to be the key um, uh, variable that we look at that distinguishes, really um, lets us take a lens on the difference between why is it some target managers are retained and other target managers are let go is the structural knowledge. So this is the how. And um, the structural knowledge, we're building it on the existing literature um, that refers to the knowledge that is embedded in organizational structures that really connect and integrate separate organizational members. So structural knowledge is going to be the managerial knowledge of how managers accomplish their goals. So this includes uh, organizational knowledge uh, about coordination, politics, relationships. So structural knowledge is how managers get their job done. Now, structural knowledge is going to be really primarily the tacit knowledge, the social capital know-how um, that comes from the experience from um, managing and uh, performing in a particular uh, organizational structure embedded in the routines and the decision-making within given um, organizational structures. So managers operating in different organizational structures, they can develop different structural knowledge. So as an example of what the structural knowledge may look like, and this is kind of a preview of how we operationalize the structural knowledge is we're going back to the very basic um, delineation between different organizational structures, centralized structure and decentralized structure. So in centralized firms, or you can think about them as U-form uh, firms, and we're really taking this um, obviously, you know, um, very distinct view of different structures, in centralized firms, the contribution of each department to uh, overall corporate performance is typically less directly observable and measurable. So what do you see managers really um, you know, investing in is understanding who is who in the organization. They are good at internal bargaining, um, coordination, um, uh, political capital networks, and social relationships. To, um, to perform well in these organizations. On the other hand, in a decentralized structure, um, you can think about um, multi-unit firm, there is much greater focus on the financial performance that is directly related to managers' actions. So managers really pay attention a little bit more toward more commitment to profitability and financial goals and really focus on tangible results. So financial performance of units is more observable. So managers are investing more in this transferable skills that help them monitor and improve the performance of the units and divisions um, with more eye toward the outside competitive uh, landscape. So, uh, building on this uh, differentiation between the technical knowledge and structural knowledge, our main argument is that structural knowledge is going to be really valuable in related acquisitions. So for different reasons, one is integration, as we said, in related integrations, uh, sorry, in related acquisitions, technical knowledge is already similar. So what is remaining is that um, the level of integration is pretty high. 
And because of that, then the structural knowledge becomes really important because then now they are facilitating coordination and communication between the two firms. So it helps if there are structural similarities there and the target managers know how to work with the acquirer um, uh, from the structural knowledge perspective. Uh, also, managers are um, non-scale free resource. So in terms of their redeployability, um, it's valuable to keep um, uh, managers with structural knowledge and related acquisitions. And um, the structural knowledge of similarity is going to be more valuable for managers um, in the target managers when there is a structural uh, relatedness. So if I were to summarize it very quickly in a theoretical framework, you can think about the technical knowledge versus structural knowledge. And TK plus is referring to technical knowledge similarity or relatedness and structural knowledges. SK plus and minus refer to structural knowledge uh, similarity and dissimilarity. So the notes in the blue, so the first column of TK plus, that's basically related acquisitions. We already know that um, the empirical uh, results that the extent literature provides is that most of the target managers are gonna be replaced. And um, in terms of the unrelated acquisitions, most of the target managers are gonna be retained because mostly they need um, the knowledge of those managers. The stuff in the blue, we replicate and we confirm that. But our main contribution is in disentangling between the structural knowledge uh, similarity and dissimilarity in uh, within the related acquisition um, context. So there we find that the turnover of target managers in related acquisitions is really driven by managers who do not have structural knowledge similarity. Okay, so. There are three hypotheses. So the first one is that given uh, related acquisitions, target managers are more likely to be retained by the acquirer when the two firms have similar structures. So you can see um, rectangle with a rectangle um, acquisition will uh, lead to more retention. The second hypothesis really digs into the mechanism and we are identifying specific managers even within given uh, structural similarity between acquire and target firms. We're looking at the target firm managers um, and we're looking at whether the managers with more structural knowledge experience similar to the acquire are more likely to be retained. So that would be the hypothesis too. And the third hypothesis is if these structural uh, knowledge managers are important to uh, performance, then we should see that Related acquisitions will have higher performance when the two firms have more similar structures than dissimilar structures. So the data is between 2001 and 2017. I'm not gonna go into the details of the data. I think the paper is linked, but I would like to show you um, the results given the time constraint. So the first um, hypothesis is that the greater retention of target managers with greater structural similarity, we find evidence for it at the firm level to looking at the, if the structure is a similar, we see almost 11% greater retention of the target managers. When looking at specifically the managers structural knowledge, we also find the results there. 
We'll look at whether the uh, results differ based on distance between acquire, physical distance between acquire and the target firm. And we can see that it is um, the distance matters. So if it's more likely uh, for a firm from the uh, closer targets, more likely to be retained than from the distant targets. And we find also uh, results for long-term um, ROA and performance and uh, long-term performance is almost uh, in the 60% greater ROA for firms that have um, post uh, uh, that have um, acquisition of the similar structure than the similar structures. So and then this, in summary, in related acquisitions, we find that turnover of target managers is actually driven by structural knowledge dissimilarity at the manager level, and which is also reflected in the post-acquisition performance um, in the short term and in the long term. That's all I have given the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for a very, very interesting paper. Um, we uh, now have Russ Bock, who's going to uh, discuss both JR's paper and Ulia's paper. And uh, as Russ mentioned in the, in the chat, uh, in the meantime, of course, if you've got any comments or questions, please feel free uh, to post them in the chat. After Russ's discussion, we also have got a few minutes for you to raise any questions. Uh, Russ, if you could please stick to 12 minutes, that would be great. I will certainly do my best. You all see my uh, presentation, I would gather at this point. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, to read these papers and, and to comment on them. I'm Hopefully, I'll do less than 12 minutes, and, and uh, we'll all catch up here. Um, I'll, the, uh, the art that you see in my presentation, it's, it's going to be kitsch by tomorrow, but this is all AI-generated art. Uh, I stuck with the um, the more abstract versions because the ones that weren't abstract were frankly just creepy. Um, but it, this is what you get when you enter the titles of the slides. Um, so uh, it, it was a, a pleasure to to be able to read these. Um, whoops, there we go. Um, starting with JR's paper. So first of all, these papers are at very different stages, obviously. So uh, that's an important observation and. Uh, uh, my comments differ as a result. Um, so for uh, JR's paper, uh, let me start with, with what's cool. Uh, the, the, the observation that managers sponsoring their employees increases ab uh, applications uh, is a neat finding. They have uh, really cool detailed data on uh, internal talent markets which is a new thing for me because I grew up on internal labor markets and uh, they spend some time drawing the distinction between them. Uh, so I learned some stuff there because I've been away from that literature for a long time. Um, I did, at, at the in the framing of the paper, there was an initial uh, point that uh, these reputation effects, the fact that some managers are hoarding and some managers are sponsoring their, their workers, that that somehow in, uh, decreased the effectiveness of internal talent markets. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was necessarily true, that warrants maybe some, some additional discussion. It sounds like something, the fact that that uh, is, is part of the sort of process might in fact uh, increase the effectiveness uh, over time. But uh, that's, you'll see, that's a big question that I had uh, and, you know, mostly what this is going to do is raise more questions, right? 
Um, so uh, in terms of questions that, that I had, um, uh, the first question was, how are managers evaluated? So it didn't look like there was any correlation between managers' uh, performance rating and uh, many of the variables in the study. So one wonders, it, you know, are they evaluated based on the extent to which they're sponsoring or hoarding their workers? Um, and although that's not specifically provided in the data, the implication is perhaps that they're not, um, but you know that's a good question. Um, relatedly, uh, I'm I'm not as as readily willing to admit that hoarding is always bad. So there's you know really severe hoarding where they're really seriously holding good employees back, and then there is sort of more subtle. So there's sort of a range on on this. At least that's the impression that I got. And for a manager, you're sort of weighing the costs of training and hiring, which is a non-trivial cost uh, when you have uh, workers moving out of, of your unit. Um, and so they did point out that it's you don't have just purely hoarding and purely uh, sponsoring managers. You have a mix. And uh, I wondered what, uh, what kind of mix might actually be the, the most productive. And so that's maybe a little bit of a different framing from the paper, but it, it def definitely made me wonder about that. Um, and uh, I thought it was curious that sponsoring in-group promotions doesn't really enhance the manager's reputation. That is, if you have a large enough unit that uh, you have promotion opportunities within your unit, that doesn't seem to, to improve their reputation outside of the unit. Um, but that seems like a good practice for a manager trying to um, keep good people, but you know, create opportunities for them. So I, I guess I would want to hear more about that. And, and these are, again, questions maybe for the next paper since this is forthcoming, but, uh, but there was a lot there for sure. Um, the next question for, for next papers uh, is, uh, what about the networks of previously sponsored workers? Um, they're in other units now. So when you've got workers that have, have moved to other units or workers that have moved in from other units, that's that also gets the word out. So they just tested the uh, the, the actual impact of the um, uh, you know of workers that were moving out of the unit uh, for promotions. Uh, but there should be if we're talking about reputation, then reputation might move word of mouth and. That was a really interesting question. I also wondered whether this would affect the uh, likelihood of managerial mobi mobility uh, out of the unit. So you've got employees all over the place in, in the organization, and uh, we know that sometimes people uh, follow their, their connections. So that might also be another possibility. Uh, what wasn't really focused on very much in this paper is how do, what does this have to do with heterogeneity and firm performance? Um, I think it does have something to do with it. This is a you know an STR sponsored um, uh, session, and I do think that it it has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, are some firms going to be better at this than others in a systematic kind of fashion, or is this purely at the manager level? And that's partly why I come back to how are managers evaluated, and does this affect manager performance uh, perceptions? Uh, in the firm as well. So uh, that's that's another thing that I'd, I'd like to see more more focus on probably in the future. Uh, there was small stuff that I saw that that 
you know, I'll I'll talk about, but the paper's forthcoming, so maybe it doesn't matter. The paper's unusually long. There's sort of a review of internal labor markets and internal talent talent markets. I saw ways that it could be shorter, um, but obviously that's uh, there's qualitative data which is cool in there. Uh, but then the question is, you know, you have to make choices usually. Um, there's not a whole heck of a lot of discussion of causality, which in the more macro liter literature tends to be a big deal. Um, it, this didn't bother me much because I didn't have a whole lot of alternative explanations that I was um, wondering about as I read it. Um, but I, I feel sort of obligated to, to bring that up, but also maybe to recognize that uh, it's more important in some studies than in others. It, it didn't bother me at all in, in this study. And of course, measures were lagged, so that, that dealt with it uh, a good bit, probably. Uh, okay, moving on to uh, Ulya's paper, uh, which is at an earlier stage. Um, what's cool is, is this introduction of structural knowledge that might lead to retention in mergers and acquisitions. This is pretty new to me. Uh, I, I see opportunities there and, and uh, both theoretically and empirically, so that part's really cool. Um, we might dig a little bit deeper into how routines differ and how that leads to knowledge differences. I think you saw a little bit more in the presentation uh, than was perhaps in the paper, so, so I suspect that Ulya in preparing this presentation probably thinks about the paper just a little bit differently, uh, which is a major uh, help of, of presenting, I think. Some questions to consider. Um, so what does structural knowledge capture? So these are, it's decentralized firms with lots of, of subunits really, right? If you saw the diagram and uh, that might correlate with larger diversified firms. It doesn't have to, but it, it probably does. Um, some of the controls help like relatedness um, but this is one where I think understanding how structure relates to some of the other variables probably is pretty important and probably needs to be brought out more. Um, the paper goes into knowledge differences amongst the target managers, uh, which is the, the um, you know, some of the target managers have experience in other firms in the last seven years. Um, but that's going to correlate with uh, the target manager's tenure at the target firm. Uh, the only ones that will have different knowledge experience, at least as I understand it, are managers that haven't been at the target firm, uh, you know, all, all that long. So that seems like that might matter. And the fact that that's related to retention uh, might also matter. Um, one thing that uh, I think we need to recognize in all of these studies is that uh, there's agency on both sides that um, that. You know, who is it that emphasizes structural knowledge in deciding fit? Is it the buyer or is it the target manager that's looking at the buyer and saying, I fit or I don't fit? And it might be a little bit of both, uh, but that was sort of a question that I came away with. Um, and uh, again, coming back to firm performance, this one includes it. I, I kind of like the change in ROA that's used as a, as a measure of firm performance. Uh, I hadn't seen that before. Uh, one caution is that uh, often in acquisitions, you acquire assets that you sell later, and that would change your uh, your ROA because you've sold assets. And that might be a more of an issue in decentralized targets that have units that can be sold off. Uh, so that you know relates to the the variables of interest in the study. Um, 
the it is true that the impact of large decentralized targets might matter in in looking at the the performance size difference was controlled so that was important um and uh but i think there might be opportunities there might be other things going on and uh finally um the you know i wondered about the role of technical knowledge in your movie Julia. Um, it's it's important, but you're not using the most rigorous measure, uh, measure of that. It's just a two-digit industry code. Uh, if you're really interested in technical knowledge, there are other measures that are not based on the product that might be based on the technologies used or uh, the, the occupational knowledge distance, things like that. Uh, whether you want to do that depends on you know how important that is. Um, I think I have time to do my last one. Um, so, uh, as always, I have a short video um, as we think about organizations. When you do business everywhere, the challenges of keeping everyone working together can quickly become the only thing you think about. So we're really talking about complex organizations in both of these papers and how the parts of the organization are connected, the flows of people uh, and information across uh, boundaries within organizations and and as well as, as across organizations. Um, I'll tie these two together really quickly with a diagram that was in Ulia's paper. So she looked at uh, the extent to which there is movement from unit A1 that is being acquired by the buyer uh, and uh, where do the people go? And uh, she, identified that, uh, well, she mentioned that 45% of the people leave the firm uh, and 40% of the people stick with unit A1, you can see, and some, some people are moving to other units. Now, if we integrate that just for a moment with JR's paper, what if um, the target has an internal talent market and it's easier for people to see paths to other parts of the firm? Are we still going to lose 45%? Um, similarly, if the buyer has an internal talent market, are we going to see the same patterns or are we going to see something completely different? Uh, so you can see putting these two papers together actually yields some interesting observations. And I hope we've had some good discussion while I have been presenting and I will stop sharing now. Thank you so much, Russ. Very interesting observations. And again, both papers very interesting. Um, practically relevant as well, uh, as also DK uh, pointed out, and also a very interesting uh, methodology there too. Okay, before we um, move on to the other papers, I want to uh, give the opportunity to the audience to raise any questions or um, share any comments, uh, any suggestions uh, with the authors. Of course, we've already seen some points uh, in the chat, but of course, now the opportunity to raise these live to the authors who then may also respond. So if you do have any comments or any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Okay, if there are no questions, no comments, uh, let's move on uh, to the next uh, set of papers. Uh, and uh, in alphabetical order, let me uh, hand the baton to DK.
All right. Um, so everybody can see my screen, hopefully. Great. Okay, good. So delighted to be here with you today. Those were uh, really fun, interesting presentations. So I enjoyed learning from both uh, Uya and um, and JR there. And and I just uh, my comment about the practical stuff was uh, that I, just last week I was doing some uh, executive training and thinking to myself, boy, I wish I had uh, used these papers to teach these executives. I think they would have really appreciated uh, those perspectives. And so it was really fun to see academically rigorous and practically relevant uh, work here. So that was a lot of fun for me. I'm going to present kind of a funny paper with Yaron. Uh, Yaron was here at the beginning, but had to leave. And so he's not he's not here. I, I like to put his paper on or his uh, picture up and he doesn't like that I put his picture up. So every time he complains, I make the picture a little bit bigger um, just to just to give him a hard time. Um, but this is a this is a little bit of a funny paper. It's a it's a paper that I've, I, I've been thinking about for many years. But it's a it's a different paper in the sense that we don't have there's not a, a, like a beta coefficient in there that we're trying to to look at. We're not we're not looking at the relationship between A and B and trying to parse something out. It's a little bit different where we're just trying to say, do workforce rents exist out there? And if so, like how much variance do we see across firms and workforce rents? And so we're 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 trying to parse that out a little bit. Where this comes from uh, for us, let me see. Um, a lot of the origin comes from this paper from Russ, a 1999 paper that I'm, I'm biased. Russ is my advisor, so admittedly so. But Russ, uh, Russ wrote this paper in 1999. I think it's a seminal piece. It gets cited all the time. I don't think it gets cited for what I think is one of the most important uh, takeaways or contributions of the piece. So one of the things that Russ points out is that if we think about the roots of a competitive advantage, competitive advantage is about which firms create more value, more economic value than competitor firms. And, um, and But Russ's point in the paper is that sometimes performance doesn't necessarily correlate with competitive advantage. And the point is that uh, is that often many of the performance metrics we use in, in, in the strategy literature are somehow derivations of accounting measures of performance. And accounting measure, measures of performance deal with you know, revenues minus the actual payments that we make to the workforce. But uh, the point is that for employees, employees often have an opportunity cost which is lower than the payment they actually get in the workforce. And this is true for most of us. Most of us, you know, we understand that, that we're getting some benefit at our current employer that's higher than our outside options or our perceived outside options, or our labor market options, which is part of why we stay. We stay because we're getting something extra. And that difference is workforce rents. It's rents that accrue to, the indiv to individual employees that are returns that are above opportunity cost. Now, one of the things I love about this paper is that you can't read it on this slide, but I'll show you on the next slide. The accepting editor from the of the of the paper was Jay Barney, and here's what Jay Barney says. Uh, his summary of the paper is: competitive advantage does not always lead to higher levels of performance. It all depends on how much of the rents created by competitive advantage are captured by stakeholders. So the point is that when other stakeholders who are not shareholders capture a lot of the rents then the competitive advantage doesn't necessarily show up in these accounting metrics of performance. Now, uh, I like that because Jay in 2018 published a paper where he basically says, you know, I, in, in, in my interpretation, he basically says, look, Russ was right in, in, in 1999, Russ was right. That's so important that we, we have these other stakeholders capturing rents that it's so important that resource-based theory must incorporate a stakeholder perspective because we have to account for these other rents that are being captured by stakeholders non, that are non-shareholders. There's others who have been talking about this recently. Here's just a few examples of this, but JWA Stolhorse has a fantastic recent SMJ talking about 
uh, stakeholder rents and, and some emphasis on employee rents and workforce rents. And then Anita McGann has a recent paper that I think is very compelling calling this a new stakeholder perspective and strategy. It's not new in the sense that stakeholder theory is new because stakeholder theory has been around for a long, 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 long time, but new in the sense that as strategists, we're taking a little bit more care in theoretically and empirically accounting for stakeholders other than shareholders who are capturing rents in the firm. And of course, as a strategic human capital person, that makes me very interested in workforce rents as one category of that. Now, part of the reason I'm really fascinated by this is that there's a lot of discussion theoretically, but going back to Russ's 1999 piece, I don't really see a ton of, of theoretical work actually trying to get at this. And so for me, there's this question of, is this a theoretical conversation? Is this just something where a bunch of theorists, we sit in the room and we say, oh yeah, stakeholder rents are so important. Or is this something where it's a substantive empirical reality that firms actually vary in the extent to which they share rents with these various stakeholders? And so in practice, our question, do firms vary in their stakeholder rents and can we observe this variation? So um, the problem, of course, with observing stakeholder rents is that stakeholder rents require us to understand or observe opportunity cost. And you probably don't even know perfectly what your opportunity cost is. And so technically the opportunity cost is the next best option in the labor market. So what's your next best option in the labor market? You probably don't know. And if you don't know, then it's probably hard for some outside empiricist to come in and measure it and say, oh, there's your, oh, Victoria, there's your opportunity cost. We know exactly what, what your next best option is if you ever leave. But, um, so, but what we do probably have is we do probably have a general sense of you know, the average labor market options. And so I know what my publication record looks like. I know the kinds of, um, of, of schools that might want to hire somebody like me. And I can assess the outside labor market and say, oh, the labor market looks pretty good this year. There are a lot of schools hiring. So I have a general sense of the outside labor market, general sense of my own human capital. And I can get a general sense of what my market compensation might be out there if I, just, if I choose to go on the market. So even though I might not know my next best option, I probably have a sense for that sort of general outside option. And so what we do here is we take a, the, a sample, which it's, a, it's the population of Belgian companies that have 10 or more employees from 2008 to 2016, it's quite nice data in that it has a lot of really detailed information on the workforce in each firm. So we, we know a lot about the characteristics and the makeups of the, of the workforce at the firm level. And then we also have a lot of very rich measures for the labor markets, what's going on in the, in, in, in the market. And so if you think about what determines your labor market wage, it's characteristics of your human capital and characteristics of the labor market. So we've got a lot of rich measures for the market, a lot of rich measures for the workforce and, and something like human capital in the workforce. So step one for us, we're gonna estimate what we call this market appropriate payment. So based on the characteristics of the workforce and the market, what is the predicted workforce payment for that workforce? How much should the firm have to pay on average in the labor market for that workforce? That's step one, we're gonna to try to estimate that. And then we're going to subtract the that market appropriate payment from the observed actual workforce payment, total fully loaded labor costs that the firm uh, incurs in order to hold on to their workforce. The difference there uh, is what we use as a proxy, rough, rough proxy for workforce rents or the extent to which each individual firm is over or underpaying employees relative to the marketplace. The result then, it's a mean-centered proxy for the extent to which work the, these these uh, these firms are over or underpaying 
their workforces. So the intuition here, you know, you have some random smattering of observations of actual workforce payments to the firm. You have some proxies for human capital or the or the the quality of the workforce, and then we can strike some line through here, which allows us for any particular level of human capital. We can take the actual observation minus the predicted, and that gives us the rents. You can see that rents could be positive or negative in this case because it's a mean-centered estimate. This is the result that we get, which I think is very interesting. Um, this is uh, this is the mean-centered version of the result. We do some adjustments with it at other times in the paper, but, uh, but mean-centered around zero, you can see that at the low end, we have some employees that are about minus 10,000 euros per full-time employee and others that are up to 10,000 euros per full-time employee per year in, in terms of annual, annual uh, payments to the, to the workforce. So that's a pretty wide range. If we look at it in terms of the ratio of the total, uh, total workforce payments, so the total amount that the workforce gets at the, the, the tails of the distribution are you know, between 40%, minus 40% to, to plus 40%, which means about 40% of the total compensation or total payments to the workforce show up as rents or excess payments, payments above market level, which is pretty substantial for an individual and also seems pretty substantial for the firm. Now, part of what we find fascinating about this is that the standard deviation in workforce rents is about 6,6300 euros per full-time employee. So, um, but the mean accounting profits in our sample here around 7,500 euros per full-time employee. So the standard deviation in excess payments to the, um, to the workforce is about the same size as the average accounting profit reported by firms in the sample, which I think is just astounding, right? So we do a number of things to just try to illustrate what, is, what, do, these, what do these data mean? And, uh, and so these are just scatter plots and they're scatter plots of our workforce rents estimate on the Y, and then here is revenues, gross added value, accounting profits, EBITDA. And these are just numbers that we often care about. You know, in the world of business, we pay attention to these numbers. And so how does the workforce rents number compare to these other standard measures of performance that we think mean something or we care about in the firm? And what we did is we drew some, some reference lines here. And they're not regression lines. They're just reference lines. So the re re reference lines say, what does an observation along this line mean? What would be the interpretation of an observation along this line? And so in this top left corner, uh, uh, an observation along that red line, that's an observation where 10% of the revenues reported by the firm show up in workforce rents or excess payments to the workforce, payments above opportunity costs. Over here, this is now um, and gross added value. So that line, that red line, every observation along that line represents a firm where 50% of the gross added value of the firm shows up in a workforce rent or an excess payment to the workforce. Down here on the bottom, these are lines for accounting profits and EBITDA. The red lines that I've highlighted are points where every dollar in profits is matched with a dollar in workforce rents. So to me, these numbers are, are, are kind of astounding. Uh, first of all, you look at the scatter here, like how much variance there is across firms in the extent to which they're over or underpaying their workforces relative to market wages, and how much how much they seem to matter or correlate, or, you know, along these different lines with these other measures that we tend to care about for for firm performance. So we've got lots and lots and lots of concerns here. So I mean, you can see what we've done. We're essentially interpreting 
uh, a, a, um, a residual. And so can you interpret a residual? How can we be sure that this residual is actually workforce rents rather than something else? You know, what are the many millions of things we might have missed here and failed to account for? And so there's that. We've done some things like, you know, we have a mean-centered uh, mean centered estimate. So we've done some things to try to shift it one way or the other to try to say, well, what happens if we if we assume no negative rents, what happens? And so there's some interesting things in there that I'm not entirely sure how to make sense of and how to think about. But uh, in summary, I think part of this is part of the reason this is really important is that it seems really consistent with that new, new stakeholder view that there are stakeholders who are not shareholders who seem to be capturing a substantial portion of the rents or the economic profits that are being created by the firm. Uh, we think this is kind of a novel approach to estimating workforce rents. What's nice about this in our data is that we do have really, really rich measures of the, of the labor market, and we have pretty good measures of the workforce, which means it's hard to think about what other factors could be explaining that, uh, that payment above or below market level estimated wage. And, um, and so we think that we're the first, at least that we know of, to kind of directly estimate these workforce rents and pay attention to this uh, this over underpayment to uh, uh, extends. And then we think this is also important. So, uh, you know, I see uh, Arnaldo here and Matthew, I didn't see Federica, but but uh, but they have this great paper recently that I love that looks at uh, the the value captured by managers and the extent to which when, when values, when, when managers create value, to what extent do they capture the value create? And their finding is fascinating because managers capture just a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the value they create. Um, and in our case, we have we see massive variance across workforces in the amount of value that they create. And some workforces capture tons and tons and tons of the excess value created in the firm. Now, their paper is a very different paper than ours. It's empirically very different than ours, much more precise than ours in a ton of ways. But I find that the, the difference between their finding that, that managers capture a tiny percent of the value they create and are finding that there's just massive variation across firms in, in value capture to be an interesting tension to play out. And so uh, and another big question for us is, what does this look like with individual data? So we've just collected, uh, Yaron has just collected um, data for about half the Belgium labor market, individual level data that we can then tie in with the firm to get uh, firm, uh, firm employee match data to try to estimate individual level rents and try to look at it and how it, how it pairs to some of the findings we have here in this paper. And so, uh, so a fascinating paper for me, but lots and lots of problems in there. I think the results are interesting, but I'm still not entirely sure how to make sense of them all. So thanks very much. That's, that's it for me. Thank you, DK. Very, very interesting uh, research. Um, okay, uh, next, uh, let me um, hand over to my wonderful INSEAD colleague, uh, Victoria. Thank you so much. So let me just share the slides quickly and see if everybody can see them, if they're displayed okay. Does this work? Yeah. All right, so thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to present this joint work with Ariana Marchetti at LBS and Shukti Ghosh, who's a PhD student at INSEAD, looking at this question of organizational culture and its role in employee turnover in firms. So I think what will not be a surprise to any of you and the audience here is that, of course, human capital is sort of a key antecedent to organizational performance and to sustainable competitive advantage. But at the same time, employees are sort of free to walk out the door. There's sort of not a lot of confidence about whether or not they're going to come back each day. And the past few decades in particular, have witnessed sort of a, a steady increase in employee turnover over time. And I'd love to actually discuss <laughs> later with JR on what are, how this compares with some of the internal mobility as well. 
But if you kind of plot the rate of uh, voluntary quits by employees since, since the end of the Great Recession to sort of the, the latest year that we have available, we see the sort of steady increase and a pretty dramatic increase, right? And sort of over the past 15 years, we've had a, the share increase by sort of twofold nearly. And the question kind of like what, what drives employee retention has, of course, been looked at quite a lot from the strategic human capital point of view and looking specifically at the role of firm specific skills, the control of organization uh, by organizations of complementary assets, intellectual property, and also firm specific incentives that organizations can offer firms and that organizations can offer employees to sort of keep them there and, and make it harder for them to find an alternative employment that provides those incentives. But in parallel, there's also been this broader literature on organizational culture that has taken a very different perspective on why individuals may stay with firms, specifically focusing on employee job satisfaction and their fit with the values of the organization and their sort of willingness to stay because of that general fit with values, beliefs, norms, and so forth. And these literatures have actually evolved pretty separately and largely independently from one another. So one of the goals of this paper is to see if there's anything interesting we can learn by integrating these two literatures. And specifically here, the question that we're going to focus on is, does organizational culture actually act as a retention mechanism? And if so, what might be some of the mechanisms? And we're going to draw on the strategic human capital literature to provide some of those potential mechanisms. So what's our theory? So in a nutshell, we're gonna begin with this recognition that cultural elements, so values, beliefs, norms, and artifacts in organizations are often actually very difficult to formalize contractually. They're sort of difficult to write out in detail for employees before they begin employment. And often understanding how the culture operates, understanding how to work effectively in that culture requires workers to undergo extensive socialization, sort of understand how to work with their colleagues, collaborate, know what the cultural and language codes are and so forth. And we're gonna argue that this process of socialization is actually largely firm specific and it's going to be very difficult to port to other organizations because the relationships and the employees at the previous employment are often not going to move with you when you leave the organization. And so the broader argument that we're gonna make is that organizations with stronger organizational cultures, and I'll define that shortly, will tend to have lower subsequent employee turnover. And conditional on employees leaving, we're also gonna show some evidence that they may have lower outside options in a form of being less likely to earn more money when they move to a new position, and also less likely to be promoted in their next employment. So in a nutshell, what are our hypotheses? So our first hypothesis is going to look at um, whether or not firms with stronger cultures actually experience lower levels of employee turnover than firms with weaker cultures. And we're also going to show that conditional on turnover, employees leaving organizations with stronger cultures would tend to receive lower salary increases and lower seniority increases. Sort of the likelihood of getting promoted in their next role is going to be lower um, than if they leave weaker culture firms. So where does our data come from? So this was actually a multi-year undertaking that we are still in the process of. We're trying to combine four very different data sources. So we begin with Glassdoor as our main source of measures of organizational culture. So these are reviews that employees post on Glassdoor of their employers. We then use data from LinkedIn and other online profiles of individuals to track actual employee mobility across firms at the month um, firm and state level. We also combine this with data from Lightcast, formerly known as Burning Glass, which tracks um, the job ads that organizations post online. And this is going to be this is going to allow us to kind of look at the level of collaboration that's needed within the organization. And finally, we're going to get a lot of our control variables also from Compostat um, for the publicly listed firms. 
So our final sample that I'll present to you today includes about 640,000 Glassdoor reviews, about 16.5 million LinkedIn profiles, all the online vacancies posted by these organizations during our time period on about 4,400 publicly listed firms. And we're going to track them between the beginning of January, January 2013, sort of beginning of the year, until the end of 2018. And I'll explain shortly why we look at this sample. Um, so what are our key dependent and independent variables? So our main dependent variable is going to be firm month state level of turnover. So for each organization, we actually know which state they have offices in, and we can track the turnover separately for that month. And we're also going to look at um, organizational culture, cultural strength specifically as our main independent variable, sort of how strong the culture is. So what do I mean by the strength? So first of all, we're gonna take a sort of bottom-up approach to measuring organizational culture, essentially as perceived by the employees of the firm. So rather than this being top-down, sort of the perceptions of top management, or this being sort of aimed at external stakeholders beyond the organization, we're gonna actually focus on what the employees perceive the cultural um, content of the organization to be in the strength. And we're gonna define cultural strength as the extent to which members have consensus, sort of agreement on which specific cultural attributes they care about, the values, beliefs, norms, and so forth, and which are the most important to them as well. And we're gonna contrast the sort of strong cultures where everyone agrees on a specific set of beliefs, values, and norms to cultures that could be characterized as sort of warring factions. So this could be that there's pockets of individual groups that share strong values within the group, but not across. And so that there's these big differences across what individuals think about the organization and what they care about. Or sort of vacuous cultures where we all sort of agree, but we all kind of agree that nothing really matters in particular. And so to give you more of a graphical interpretation of what this measure looks like, we're gonna think of weaker organizational cultures as those where individuals might share all of the same attributes or the same values or norms. So for example, it could be autonomy, integrity, fairness, honesty, kindness. But for some individuals, it's all about honesty and that's the most important value that they hold. Other individuals may hold fairness as the most important value. Still others might hold integrity as the most important value. So we're going to see these kinds of cultures as less strong than a culture that essentially looks like this. All individuals sort of share all the same five values, but actually they also share the same one as the most important and the others as kind of less important. And I can go into more detail in Q&A exactly how we measure this in, in Glassdoor. And a lot of the credit, all of the credit actually goes to Ariana for developing this. This was part of her dissertation. Um, but in the interest of time, let me just show you also some of the main controls that we have. So we're going to also control for the content of the culture specifically what are the specific um, values, beliefs, norms, and so forth that we see from, again, the Glassdoor reviews. And here we use a word embedding model and we follow the organizational cultural profile um, inventory of different elements that have been identified in prior work as key to measuring all kinds of different cultures and firms. We also control for overall satisfaction of employees with the organization's culture, again, using Glassdoor reviews. We control for whether or not the company has ever been on a best place to work ranking, the number of Glassdoor reviews it's gotten, and also for things like employee salary, the average tenure in a firm, the size of the company in terms of number of employees, and also firm state and firm month fixed effects. Finally, of course, the, the key question here and the big elephant in the room is that organizational culture is highly endogenous and very path dependent. And so what do we do to try to get around this? And this is definitely by no means a perfect uh, way of getting there. We're still trying to figure out what the best way of going about this is. But what the results that I'll present to you will use a shock to the enforceability of non-compete agreements that took place in Pennsylvania in November 2015, where the Supreme Court ruled on a particular decision between SOCO and Mid-Atlantic Systems 
that non-compete agreements signed during employment are no longer enforceable. And this was important because most non-compete agreements actually are signed during employment or after employment has commenced. And it's been a substantive change that was widely discussed in the press. And so what I'm gonna basically show you is a series of difference and difference models that, are, that essentially show heterogeneous treatment across weak and strong culture firms. But the shock that we're going to use is to this non-compete um, agreement enforceability. And the idea that we have is that for stronger culture firms, they should be less sensitive to such changes in contractual um, uh, non-competes than, than weaker culture firms. So what are our effects? So I'm gonna show you one graphical representation and one table just in the interest of time. And then we can discuss maybe in the Q&A some of the details. So what we find using the synthetic control method, which basically tries to match the pre-trends of um, organizations based in Pennsylvania versus based outside of Pennsylvania, um, on again, for weak cultures and strong cultures separately. And what we basically see is that there is a pretty strong and significant effect on weaker culture firms. They tend to actually experience higher levels of turnover following this shock than stronger culture firms. And we verify with our difference in difference models also that this is a significant effect and it also is pretty significant economically. The second broad finding that we find is that there's also this difference in kind of the, the level of position that an individual leaving a strong versus a weak culture firm gets when they, when they do conditional on them actually leaving the organization. So here we compare individuals who leave organizations with weaker versus stronger culture firms. And this is sort of split at, at the median. And we find that those leaving stronger culture firms actually experience a lower increase in salary, which is significant. And the difference is significant between these two and also a lower change in seniority. So they're less likely to be promoted in the next role that they take up um, once they move to the, to the next firm. And both of these are sort of significant both in terms of economic value as well as kind of statistically. We then have a whole bunch of robustness checks that I won't bore you too much with. The only kind of couple that I would like to mention is that we don't also try to um, use course and exact matching to try to match on the observables of stronger and weaker culture firms to adjust for the fact that we of course don't have random assignment of culture. Um, and we also find importantly that the results are stronger even for cultures that um, are lower rated on these Glassdoor reviews. So essentially it's not just about the preferences of individuals for being in stronger culture firms. We seem to find some evidence that even those who aren't particularly happy with their current culture are still more likely to stay if it's a stronger rather than a weaker culture that we thought was quite interesting. So in the last, 30 seconds that I have left, broad contributions and discussion. So essentially what, what the goal of this paper is to try to bridge these two literatures, the strategic human capital and organizational culture, and potentially also propose a novel mechanism that we think is quite interesting. The sort of socialization and stronger organizational cultures is a potential source of firm specific skills, which has of course been a big, um, big topic in our literature. We also think that there's some intriguing evidence that, of course, not direct, but the implications of our research suggest that uh, there could be this sort of source of competitive advantage from human capital that organizations could get if they could develop a stronger organizational culture, especially in the face of these environmental shocks. And secondly, our results are sort of also further indicative of the potential trade-off between, on the one hand, cultural fit for an employee and their career outcomes. So even if individuals prefer to be in stronger culture firms, there seems to be a potential downside of actually locating such organizations because of the lower outside options further down. And to the best of our knowledge, this is sort of the first large scale analysis of, of organizational culture and kind of the first attempt at combining um, both content and distributional property measures. All right, I think I am out of time. 
Thank you so much. And I really look forward to your comments. Thank you so much. And of course, you can email the um, uh, presenters as well directly your comment uh, comments, or you can um, highlight them in the chat. And later on, also, you have the chance to raise any questions, of course, too. Um, next, let me hand over to Matt, who is going to be the discussant uh, for both DK and also uh, Victoria's paper. Great, thank you. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you very much, Philip, for inviting me to do this. It's a great honor to get to discuss these papers, even if being the discussant makes me feel old, but that's my problem, not yours. Um, so I'll try not to take too much time because um, I'm sure people in the call have much smarter questions about these papers than I do, but I just wanted to share a little bit about kind of both what I think is cool for the, about them, kind of both for the authors, but also kind of just generally as we think about where research is going, what, what are some things to highlight, and then some of the questions that I will um, I will raise. So fortunately, I have these in the order in which they um, they were presented. So let's start with DK's paper on documenting workforce rents. A few things that I love about this paper. Um, yeah, I, I really like the way that um, DK and Haroon uh, really they take this question about kind of rent capture that's really been at the heart of human capital research for you know, the last two decades. To my eyes, there's a slightly different spin on it, which I think reflects work recently. I mean, I think one of my complaints about human capital research, certainly up to four or five years ago, was it always had that tone of, you know, the thing that's really wrong in the world? Workers are making too much money at the expense of those poor firms. And if only we can help firms figure out how to capture more of that value back, everything will be fine. And I, you know, never fully on board with that. And so I like the way that it's kind of being reframed more as if we really want to think about what firm performance is, maybe we don't just want to look at what the firms are capturing, but kind of what, what the overall pie is. So I think that's very cool. I completely agree with DK as well that this has been a really important theoretical literature with a really weird lack of um, empirical work. Um, and you know, weird i think it's been very hard to measure and so i think just starting to bring just some some basic empirical facts of this is very valuable and to that end, i really like the fact that it's abductive um i think uh you know we've been talking for at least 10 years about oh well kind of we worry about p hacking and all of these sorts of things and hypothesizing after res results are known um there's always been this disconnect between how we claim research is done when we write the papers and um, how research is actually done. I've always thought the solution, which is let's try and do research like we write it up, seemed nuts to me. Um, and so I certainly prefer this solution of let's let's write the let's write the research as we do it, which is kind of you know, a bit more exploratory. So um, I love that. I, it's also a really thoughtful paper. Um, if you get a chance to read it, attention to lots of different concerns. Um, I'm going to bring up a few of my own, but very much with that um, background. And actually things that um, DK has already um, already discussed. I mean, the, the elephant in this paper, as it were, is how different are workers? So to some extent, you know, conditional on their education level, um, whether they're manager or white collar or blue collar and the industry they're in, by and large, 
everybody has the same outside options, right? And regional effects and so on. And so the big, and so kind of any cross-firm differences are then attributed to rents as opposed to this organization has kind of workers with more, better outside options than the other. Um, yeah, the paper is alive to this concern um, and, you know, has some very nice robustness checks, including kind of, well, do we see productivity is much higher in high rent firms? Do we see turnovers lower? A bunch of sensible things. Um, yeah, I did go back. There is a paper that probably worth um, looking at again, if you haven't looked at it recently, which is this about Kramar's Margolis paper they do something that it sounds like you're going towards with this kind of individual level data they basically look at workers moving across firms to try and figure out you know how much of these differences are firm level how much are worker differences and how different are workers once we account for i think they have kind of education experience they find the standard deviation in worker effects is about 0.4 log points so really quite large um and so this is not a small issue. Now, at the same time, in order for this to be driving your results, we have to assume that those are perfectly correlated within firms, right? So you either have very high ability works in firms or very low ability. Chance are it's more mixed. So, I mean, I think there are good reasons to kind of think this is not the whole story, but I, I imagine you will continue to get questions about this. Something else, so not something that I think you talked about in the talk, but um, discussed in the paper. So you kind of say, okay, well, let's think about for the average worker, how much of their pay is made up of rents. Um, and the way that you do this is basically subtract out the kind of, say the lowest residual is kind of the floor and everything else is rent. I apologize profusely if I misunderstood this, but there is a kind of it kind of looks like, you know, the mean of your workforce rent proxy is about 19,000 euro out of an average payment of 25,000 euro. That meant, as I understood it, your kind of outside option is about 6,000 euros a year. Um, I went back and I checked what minimum wages are in Belgium, um, which is about 18,000 euros per year. I don't think this does too much to your um, the rest of your estimates. It, it did make me think, I mean, obviously data's messy. And one of the challenges with playing around with residuals is how much is the noise in the data and how much is um, is a genuine effect. One thing it struck me you could do is probably Windsorize your data um, so that no firm is, playing, is paying less than um, minimum wage. And maybe even run a Tobit or something like that. Again, to kind of create a floor of no firm is running below minimum wage. I think that might kind of increase this. The other thing I thought, I mean, given again, this this lovely setup about, you know, look, when we look at profits, we're probably looking at the wrong outcome variable. I mean, the richness of your data is that you have stuff on value added. So, I mean, I think another way to get at this would be very nice just to see some kind of, if we look at profits, these are kind of what we see. Now let's see with value added and kind of where is it the same and where is it different? I think that would be another nice way to kind of develop this um, this agenda. Um, theoretically, great paper. The one question, set of questions that I ended up with, and as you touched on this in your talk, I think more in the papers, when I was thinking about opportunity cost, I was like, wow, I have no idea what my opportunity cost is. Um, you know, indeed, I would go further. I mean, I assume virtually all of us probably are not in our highest paying job, 
Right. There is some other job that could be paying us more. The challenge is we just don't know where it is, right, or what it is. Um, I find it unlikely that kind of given the horrible noise in the market, it does raise to me an interesting question about given we believe that markets are hugely heterogeneous in terms of the opportunities and hugely frictional, um, how we think about that opportunity cost. I mean, I, it's not a major problem, but it, um, it, it it did strike me that kind of reservation wages is kind of a nice kind of what what we broadly expect. And you talk about perceived opportunity costs, but it did strike me kind of as you get into some of that in the details of the paper, this whole idea starts to feel more and more problematic. Um, but yeah, great paper. Um, second paper on culture, human capital and turnover. Um, again, lovely work. Um, I think what I like about this paper particularly is it's stuff we would never have done five or six years ago. And so it's always nice to see um, see research evolve. And it, it's kind of stuff we couldn't have done in the past various reasons. I mean, it is, it's almost like having a bingo card of all the modern data sources. It's like burning glass now, like cast, check, LinkedIn, check, glass door, check, bingo. You know, we've got them all. We've also got topic modeling and kind of other natural language processing techniques. It really just showcases, I think, all of the really cool tools that we now have. And I'm old enough that kind of, you know, it used to be if you were studying human capital, you did surveys of firms, you got data from within firms, or you kind of used these kind of government data sets, which had almost no, none of the things that you wanted in them. And so the fact that now we're really able to look inside multiple different firms and compare what they're doing is just um, enormously cool. Um, I think this idea about how companies shape outside options of their employees is something that we really haven't thought about very much. Um, I think it's very cool. And, you know, I find the results fascinating. I think particularly, actually, the results about kind of these pay changes um, as um, as people leave strong culture versus weak culture firms. Not something I would have thought about. Opens up a whole host of questions, although I do um, have some questions about how exactly we frame it. So very nice paper. Um, as you develop the paper further, um, some topics that I would push you on a little bit. Um, I think on the theory, actually, in this paper, which is what exactly is going on with the um, with the strong culture firms that leads people to do less well when they leave it. Implicitly in the paper at times, I felt I was kind of reading, well, you know, because we've got a lot of firm specific human capital, that's not useful to outside employers. It's true, but I mean, it's not clear to me that firm specific capital is necessarily a substitute for general human capital. And so it's partly if by getting that firm specific human capital, we're actually losing out on general human capital that we would otherwise have had. Um, and the other thing is, I wondered a little bit about the um, counter offers, as it were, which is if I've developed a lot of firm specific human capital, I'm going to be a real pain for this company to replace. And so in principle, the company I'm leaving ought to be offering me more money. And so you ought to have to actually pay a lot of money in order to pull me out of that company versus another. So I just, I mean, I think there are different stories you can tell. I mean, I was trying to think, is it plausible? Yeah, that company's so weird that those people never work out when we hire them here. 
It's possible. On the other hand, I think a lot of the really strong culture companies that we think of, I think kind of places like GE, Goldman Sachs, their employees are incredibly highly sought after by others. So I at least want to think a little bit more about what's going on. Yeah, it did strike me that one possibility is um, actually what you're seeing with the change in pay is that these strong culture firms are paying more. That because we have high firm specific human capital, it's worth more for us to hang on to our people. So we pay them more in order to do so. As people leave, then it kind of looks like they're not getting um, big gains. Um, all of that said, um, kind of two other things. I'll be more upfront early on about what the pay variable measures. So having said, we have all this really cool data that looks inside firms. The one thing we still don't have is good measures of pay. And so as I understand it, your data is some stuff comes from job postings, but job postings still in the US, not many job postings really carry pay. So a lot of it is kind of this machine learning. What do we think this job ought to pay? I think that's still interesting data. Right. I think you are still um, you've got to measure whether people move from high paying jobs to other high paying jobs or lower paying jobs or so on. But it, it feels a little bit like a bait and switch. And so, yeah, my when I'm writing a paper, the way I always try and do it is you don't want people to be surprised when they get to the method section about how you're operationalizing things. You want to move that forward into the theory section and talk about people into moving into lower paying jobs versus higher paying jobs. And I think that kind of helps keep the whole thing a little more consistent. Um, yeah, also it's complex paper. Um, you probably got the right constructs in there, but I did slightly wonder, do you want to focus on firm specific capital or do you want to focus on strong culture? I think the paper currently leads with firm specific human capital. I might be tempted to switch that because I think the culture piece is, is where you're strongest. But um, Either way, very interesting paper. I um, look forward to seeing how it progresses. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Matthew. Fantastic comments, really. Um, so we have got a few minutes left. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, raise any questions uh, to the two authors, if so, please raise your hand. Feel free to speak up. Okay, there were, of course, a couple of very good points uh, raised in the chat. Uh, I will uh, uh, make the chat available as well. I've saved it uh, to the authors. Um, with that, I just want to uh, do a couple of things. Um, the first thing is I would like to uh, thank everybody for the great turnout. Um, I also would like to thank the uh, speakers, the presenters for presenting a very interesting work. I also would like to thank um, Russ and, and Matt for their very thoughtful discussions of the papers and the very helpful suggestions on how to improve uh, these papers. Um, also, I want to mention to everybody that the session has been recorded and the session is going to be uploaded on the YouTube channel from the SDR division. Uh, so if you'd like to revisit uh, some of the presentations, you can do that. Just uh, wait a couple of days before it will be uploaded. Uh, the last thing I want to do is I want to just uh, point out two upcoming STR virtual symposiums, the one next week on strategic management of knowledge and innovation, and also uh, next month, the one on 
corporate strategy research. So you, you've got a QR code. Feel free to sign up uh, and, uh, of course, register uh, for this. So uh, thank you so much uh, for attending and I look forward to seeing